Welcome to our Wednesday night midweek worship, Bible study, equipping, discipleship. We need to get get like a good name for it. But uh, we're embarking on a journey together and it will be one that I totally expect people are going to come in and out of as we go through it. And so my goal is to have something like what you have in your hand. Um, The outline. Oh, yeah, there's one there, Pam. Sorry. Uh, <clears throat> so that people, you know, to send out to the church so that people can get their hands on it. Maybe uh, I might be able to have a transcript of this later as well to, to send out so that people can read it. Uh, that way, if, if you want to revisit it or if uh, more folks in our church, because we have people that are uh, unable to be here or hesitant because of the weather or who are volunteering right now. So um, <clears throat> we want to make this available. But it's a new journey as we walk through the, the Baptist uh, Baptist Catechism of 1693. Okay, I, mean, I meant to flip this around. So the Baptist Catechism of 1693, and what happened? Uh, and I mentioned some of this last time, so I don't want to take up all my time, but I do want to have a little bit of a uh, history time. Um, but before I talk about that, I want to. Read Jude 3. So Jude, I think I mentioned it last week. Jude only has uh, one chapter, so the third verse of the book of Jude. Uh, Jude is, I don't know if you guys remember, it was a couple years ago, two, three years ago now, two years ago, I think. Uh, I preached through Jude, and it was it's just so fun. Um, you have lots of unique stuff. But Michael fighting, you know, fighting over with the devil over the body of Moses. Like, what in the world's happening there? But... Um, Jude begins uh, with a normal welcoming and things in verses 1 and 2. But then in verse 3, he, he articulates why he's writing. He said, I wanted to write this way, but I'm having to write this way. I wanted to talk about these things, but because of your circumstances, I want to write about these things. And there's one sort of bracketed idea that I want you to have up and running from Jude 3. Uh, so let me read that to you. And I'll talk for a second, then we'll pray, and then we'll kind of dive into some of this stuff. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. So he writes, these are Christians. He's writing to Beloved, or in the CSB there, it's Dear Friends. Uh, And he's writing to Christians saying, I wanted to write about our common salvation. What a glorious subject about how God has saved us through his grace in Christ and to point them to the gospel and help them to worship the Lord. Uh, But because of the circumstances of this group of people, he said, I felt it necessary. There was a burden on Jude. Now, Jude is probably uh, one of Jesus's brothers. Uh, There's James that we know of, who's the leader of the church in Jerusalem, not the brother of John James, but there's another James. And this is probably one of those brothers, okay, Jude. And he writes saying, I, I had to appeal to you to contend, to fight, to battle, to grind, to uh, stand up for, to, t- you know, t- to contend for the faith once handed down for the saints. And so I, I mentioned this, I know I mentioned this last time. That faith in the New Testament, one of the, it's used in numerous ways, but, but two of the major ways that it's used is that faith is used as our faith experience of grace, right? Uh, that we are personally, uh, by grace, trusting in Jesus. There is a personal trust. There is that, that's an experience of grace that I'm trusting in the Lord. So there's the, the experience piece of faith. But then oftentimes in the New Testament, faith is qualified by that definite uh, pronoun, right? <clears throat> the, the faith. And that's what we have here. I'm continuing you to, to I'm, I'm appealing to you to contend earnestly, sincerely for the faith. And so the faith here isn't, they're not having to defend their personal experience of faith, but they're having to defend the faith, the stated truths about God, about Jesus, about uh, the Bible, about f- salvation, you know, justification by faith alone and Christ alone, by grace alone and Christ, all those sorts of things. That they had to contend for the faith so that there is a, 
if you will, there is a body of teaching that is handed down. So the faith here is something that can be handed down, right? It's once delivered for all the saints. Uh, So my personal experience of faith, of trusting in Jesus, the operation of God in my life, I can't pass that down to my children. I can give witness to it, right? I can say, this is what God has done for me. This is... Uh, this is where I was, where I am. This is how Jesus saves us. But I can't make that their own. But I can say, here is the faith. And I have a response. And so you see there's a the difference. And I'm going to talk about, this is the, the heart and hands. Oh, it's supposed to be heart and head. Oh, I was distracted earlier. Um, but that I can hand down saying, Jesus is Lord. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, God is triune. Uh, God created the heavens and the earth. He, he rescued a people out of Egypt. He's, he sent his only son to die for us. This is who Jesus is. This is what Jesus has done. This is the, so I can you understand what I'm saying, the, the difference. I can't hand down that, that salvation experience, but I can, I can hand over the, the head part. I can entr- and that's often what we're doing in the church, right? I cannot give you that first kind of faith. That's the work of God, the Holy Spirit. I can give you the faith. Here is the faith once handed down for the saints. And then God, by his grace, because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ, God can take the truth and bring you into uh, that experience of faith. Or if you have trusted in Jesus, he can strengthen that trust and bolster that trust trust and, uh, you know, um, just make it deeper and wider and more joyous. The more you know and understand the faith. So everybody understand the distinction I'm drawing here? Okay. Uh, and so when we think of, let me, let me pray now and after that introduction and um, we'll get into it. Father, we thank you for, first of all, we thank you for you and, and for Christ. We thank you that you are the creator of the heavens and the earth, that you are our creator and that you are our Lord. You are our king and we belong to you. And, but even more so, we belong to you because you have sent your, Jesus, your son Jesus to die for us. That you have taken away our sin, laid them upon the, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God, and we have been given his righteousness. We praise you, O Lord, for the wonder of grace and the wonder of Christ. Would we, as we think tonight together, Would we wonder afresh? Would we marvel anew at your greatness, the wonder of the gospel, and that through that we might be a people more earnest, both in our contending for the faith and more earnest in our worship as we know you more. So God, would you teach us? Lead us, Holy Spirit. We cannot do this apart from you. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hmm. Excuse me. All right. So I want to say one thing I did not plan to say. That there, as I drew that, and, and this would be the same distinction in different language. So the same distinction I was drawing between that experience of faith and the body of teaching that is, uh, this is the faith we're handing down, right? The nature of God, the nature of Jesus, the nature of the gospel. Um, that there is a difference between knowing God and knowing about God. All right? There's a difference between knowing God and knowing about God. Um, but that you can't know God unless you know about him. But you can know about him without knowing him. Okay, I know that was kind of a riddle, but maybe you, tra- you traced with me. Uh, there's a, you, can, you can know You can know the books of the Bible. You can know your Bible drill. You can know your catechism if you were taught it. You can know all the theological questions. You can, and they can all be asked to you, uh, someone studying the uh, the the elemental chart or something in chemistry. They could just be a subject that you're very well acquainted with, and you know about God. Um, And there's a difference between knowing about Him and knowing Him. Um, But both of them operate as. Or, or this, this distinction between um, heart and head. Let me find my, my pen. I left my blue pen in the, my office, so you're going to have to get black pen. Um, 
that oftentimes in, in church history, uh, this has been a spectrum. And people fall off on one side or the other. And when you fall off on one side or the other, you fall into error. So, for example, um, what we are most, at least in the in, in growing up, what I was most guarded against was just this I'm knowing about God. That's what I mean by just head head experience, head knowledge, um, knowing about Him. And so you, you you check all your boxes. You uh, you can you can answer all the questions. You know all the confessions. You know all the catechisms. But there's no warmth in your heart towards Jesus, right? John Wesley talked about in his conversion uh, that he he felt his heart strangely warmed. It's a wonderful description of the work of regeneration. So <clears throat> there is a danger of falling off into a coldness of uh, of sort of uh, intellectual religion without true faith to it. Uh, and then you can also fall off on this side, on the heart end, and this would be, uh, historically, this, this looks like pietism. And pietism is this, you're going to do your inner, you have an inner sort of spiritual experience, and then it's all about you fostering that sense of experience. We see this today, right? Churches today are, by and large, now there, there's, a, there's a mixture here. But by and large, churches are, are falling off on this side because our culture is caught up in experience. Uh, and so what happens is that there's, there's little room left for uh, thinking. There's little room left for uh, knowing about God, believing that somehow we can di diverge, uh, divorce heart and head, right? What happens when you you, if you divorce your head from your heart? Like for you, a body, a person, you die. Uh, the same thing can happen to churches. When you when you when you make a false divorce here, you're going to you're going to die. Either you're going to die cold and lifeless. You could you could really make an allusion here to the uh, the Wizard of Oz, right? With the Tin Man and the Lion and all the Scarecrow. Um, <clears throat> not the end, but anyway. But um, and the, were those monkeys? <laughs> Still gets me. Still gets me. I, as a kid, definitely. Anyways. Um, but if we draw this divorce, then we're going to, I'm not saying that, that pe these people aren't saved or I'm not going to go that far, but I'm, I'm saying they're, they're not living into, um, who they could be in Christ because he's made us as whole people. Uh, and the only way that we can really know him experientially, I can know him in relationship is if I know about him. If I don't know about him, it's just like Sarah Beth. If I don't know about her, there's no way I can love her. If I don't, you know, there's no, you know, from the little things of how, you know, finally got our drinking coffee. That was a big win in our marriage. <laughs> really, it was circumstances of kids and work, and she wanted coffee in the morning. It was less about me. Uh, but knowing how she likes her, her eggs and knowing how she likes her coffee and then knowing big things also of how, how I ought to uh, be, be trying to shepherd her heart and looking out. Anyways, that if I'm going to love her, I have to know her. I have to know about her if I'm going to truly know her. And the same, it even much more so, is true of Christ, right? I, I have to know about him, that he is, right? If I, if I don't know about Christ being the second person of the Trinity, I don't know about him being the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, I'm not going to know him. I'm going to have a name Jesus that I, I fill in the gaps with whatever I want. Uh, but but if, I just, if, I just, if I'm only able to fill in those gaps, then... Uh, um, there's going to be no heart, there's going to be no joy, and I'm not going to be able ultimately to obey Jesus. Because Jesus says, the fruit of the Spirit are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. Those things flow from the heart. Um, so we need new hearts and new minds. And So anyways, uh, because when we kind of press into confessions and catechisms, traditionally, um, I've been... You get, you get kind of caught on the spectrum. Because people say, well, I don't, I don't want to just know about God. Um, but the idea is that the more that we know about him, and this is the goal of this, of us studying this catechism together, uh, is that the more we know about him, the, the better and more we're going to love him. Uh, we're, you know, in tonight, especially, you know, uh, not especially, but tonight as we, as we, in a moment, we're going to talk about just question number one about uh, who is God? Who is the first and, and chiefest? I'm keeping old school language, and I'll, I'll explain that in a minute. But as you begin to think about the, the bigness and the wonder and the, the, the supremacy of God, it should lead us to wonder and to worship. 
It should fill in our singing as we're singing and as we're worshiping and living for him. Uh, so that was, that was supposed to be number two. But why confessions of faith, which uh, I talked a little bit about last week, but and why catechisms, um, so that we, we do both of these. And ultimately, as we do both heart and head, um, it goes to hands. And so, really, when you think about it, catechisms are, a, are, to, are to be a discipleship tool. Because this is how we're formed into the image of Jesus. We, uh, we have the mind of Christ, Paul says. We're renewed in the spirit of our minds. We set our minds on that which is noble and trustworthy and good and true in Philippians 4.8. Uh, we, have, we have hearts that the Holy Spirit is pouring out the love of God in our hearts in Romans chapter 5. And then we begin to do hands. We begin to do what God tells us to do. Uh, so head, heart, hands. We want all of those to be growing and maturing individually and also in our congregation, in our church. Um, because this is what disciples are made of. So the goal in a catechism is to really, from the head, you know, new thinking, new mind... Uh, flow into heart and to hands. So it's just a tool. In these catechisms, which catechism is simply a question and answer, as you'll see in a second. It's just a question and it supplies an answer and it's meant for, they were designed, uh, sorry, I was like, is that my phone? Then I heard it it's and I was like, that, that's not my phone. It's just, well, you better talk to him. <laughs> I need to talk to that guy. Uh, sorry. Um, Yeah, I'm somewhere. <laughs> um, oh, so catechisms were originally used in the early church as a way to prepare people for baptism. So um, when someone was came to faith in Jesus and they, they, wanted to, they wanted to be baptized, the church would not immediately baptize them, typically, or the early church. They would, they would typically go through a year-long uh, catechesis, a, cate- a year-long catechism process where they are taught the faith. They're entrusted, here's the faith once handed, the faith, remember, taught the faith once handed down for the saints uh, so that, one, they would make sure that they wanted to make this commitment because in the early church, it could very well cost them their head or more, right? It was, it was a life-or-death decision to follow Jesus. So you had a year before you were baptized, and baptism being this public declaration of your allegiance to Jesus. So they had a year-long process, roughly, some, sometimes it varied, uh, <clears throat> to, to learn the faith and also sort of saddle up to the responsibility. Uh, and then if they went through that process and they said, still said they wanted to do it and they were able to um, sort of articulate the catechism, um, this ancient, not, not this one, but an ancient catechism from the early church, then they would be baptized. Now, <clears throat> church history, well, you don't need all the church history stuff, but that's, so they're typically used uh, to prepare people who were either young in the faith, like they had just come to Jesus, to help teach them in a, an orderly fashion, to teach them the faith, uh, to prepare them for baptism. Um, many denominations and traditions use catechisms today, but they use them differently than that. They use them Instead of pre-baptism, they use them as post, post-baptism. So like um, p- traditions that baptize children, like infant baptism. Um, so in Presbyterian or Methodist tradition, you would, or I'm sure others, um, Anglican, you would, <clears throat> the child would be baptized, grown, grown up, brought up, and then would be uh, catechized, be taught the faith before uh, something called confirmation. And that looks different in different traditions. Um, but so the catechism, this, the Baptist catechism is designed for, um, it was originally designed for children so that for in-home worship, uh, heads of households could teach their families the faith so that over the course of a year or so you could teach and have your children memorize these things back. We're, we're working on it in our house, right? We got a couple questions down, not of this one, but of a different catechism. Um, mainly because of the language, as you'll see, it's just more challenging. Um, but because, one, uh, they were designed for children or people who are younger in the faith who are less initiated, uh, 
Um, a catechism is a great way to uh, begin to dig a little deeper into knowing God through your mind, like understanding the truths of God and the nature of God as he's revealed in Scripture. Um, because in, the, in, in a minute, I'll talk about the structure of the Baptist catechism. Um, <clears throat> but uh, it, it, it's, it's very orderly and systematic in the way that it presents truth over a long period of time. Okay? Uh, so we're, why, why, why catechism? Because truth. Uh, because we're concerned about truth. Uh, John seventeen seventeen. Jesus in his high priestly prayer is praying for us. He's praying for the disciples and those who will believe after them. And he says, uh, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Uh, so sanctify means to set apart as holy, grow them up in holiness. And the way that God grows us up in holiness, Jesus prays to the Father there. The way that he grows us up is by the means of the truth revealed in the word of God. So we, we will be stunted Christians if we are not digging into the word. Uh, and this is a way, as you'll see, there are um, scriptures attached to every answer to help, um, help us explore the Bible together. Truth, I've talked about the head and the heart and hands, and I've talked about Jude 3. Okay, so that's just the sort of three reasons why. Um, quick history. Um, as I mentioned last week in... The, the particular Baptists of the 17th century, mid-17th, late 17th century, uh, put together a, a Baptist confession of faith, which was originally compo- written in 1677, but it was illegal. Uh, it, they were, they, they were, there was not uh, religious toleration. There was not religious freedom. And so Baptists and, um, and many other Congregationalists and some Presbyterians there were um, dissenters and separatists from the Church of England. Uh, and so in 1677, it was written within the context of a church called the Petty France Church in London. Uh, but it was made public after the Act of Toleration in 1689. In 1689, there's the Act of Toleration. And so they came out publicly and all these pastors put their name on it. They signed it. So it's called the 1689 Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. Uh, so what happened is that they began to hold what are called general assemblies, and they would be roughly like our, um, our annual meeting, Southern Baptist annual meeting, similar, um, not exact, but they started doing it, my dad, my dad's calling me, my dad's not my church, um, what do I do? Uh, <clears throat> so they started having general assemblies, and in the 1693 general assembly, so a few years after the, the act of toleration, I know this might bore you. This, I get excited. I was, it's, so, it's interesting for me. Um, but they were having these year after year. And in 1693, there, there, were, um, there were two Baptist general assemblies. There was one in Eastern, which is in London. And they had had another one in Bristol, which is western, southwestern England. Um, and in 1693, they said William Collins, who is now the pastor of that Petty France church, should put together a catechism for the use of teaching children in households, of teaching those who are, who are being initiated into the faith. And so it's, it, it was in 1693, and we're not entirely sure when William Collins got it done, but we know that by 1695, it was in its fifth edition. So it was very popular very soon. <clears throat> and so uh, probably 1693, 1694, he got it done. Uh, so it's often called... Keech's Catechism, but it's probably better called uh, William Collins. And there's, there's more to say there. But um, <clears throat> Like the 1689, which I'll just shorthand for the Confession of Faith. And if you have a question, if I've blitzed over you, if I'm going too fast, just, I'm just sort of trying to give you some where we get this document that we're about to study. Um, that the, like the 1689 Confession of Faith, which... Um, the 1689 Confession of Faith is, and this isn't, this isn't like a technical, like studied number, it's, a, it's an educated guess, is about 85 to 90% the same as the Westminster Confession of Faith, which is a Presbyterian document, and the Savoy Declaration of Faith, which was a congregational independent uh, uh, document. So when you, and probably those things don't make any sense, so let me stop for a second. Um, 
you had in England, you had the Church of England, and then you had these groups that could not worship according to their conscience. They could not worship according to the 1662 Book of Common Prayer uh, for multiple reasons. So out of that, there were these dissenting separatist groups that were the Presbyterians, which you're familiar with, the Westminster Standards or their documents, the uh, Confession of Faith, larger catechism, shorter catechism. There were the Congregationalists who um, looked very similar to the Presbyterians, but they believed, like we do, in a congregational church government. So they're called Congregationalists. And then there were the Baptists who were the, the crazy, uh, crazies of the bunch uh, who said congregational, uh, church, congregational church government and believers' baptism. So those are the three groups, and all of them came out with their statements of faith, these confessions. Um, <clears throat> and at some point, we'll talk further about why that's a good thing, to have a public statement of faith. I talked about that a little bit last week, but um, <clears throat> that they had their, their three, and everybody sort of borrowed from, the West, from Westminster, 1646 is when Westminster was finished, um, as far as I know. And so the Congregationalists at the Savoy took some of it, and then the, uh, the Baptists borrowed mostly from the Savoy, this in the Congregational document, but because they borrow from the Savoy, they, they also borrow from the, um, <clears throat> from the Presbyterians. And that shouldn't trouble you. They did it on purpose. That if you were to read the prefet, and they're not, they don't hide it or anything. It's not plagiarism. They're, they're very open about it. Uh, and the same thing happens with this catechism, that much of it is... Now, there are distinct differences, right? But much of it looks very similar to the Westminster Shorter Catechism because William T- Collins took the Westminster Shorter Catechism and he, he baptized it. Uh, and this isn't, it was not unheard of. Where's my book? Um, I think I mentioned last week that my, my favorite Baptist of the period is called, his name's Hercules Collins, just because his name is Hercules. Um, but this, he, this is called an Orthodox Catechism. And he did the same thing with the Heidelberg Catechism, which is a, um, <clears throat> a uh, from the what's today the Netherlands. But he took it and he baptized it. So he kind of took out the parts that are, would be offensive to or out of line of biblical teaching. I don't want to be unnecessarily incendiary. Anyway, um, but they, they did this on purpose to show unity that while we have our differences – we share this much. So the vast majority of the document is saying we're on the same team. And, and, and the Baptists were, I mean, of the bunch, like I said, we were the crazies. And we were often treated like the crazies, you know, by, by all those groups, by the Church of England, by the Presbyterians, by the Congregationalists, uh, the redheaded stepchildren. But the early Baptists wanted to show that we're, we, we're not preaching, teaching, living an alternate faith, but actually it's the same it's the same faith once handed down for the saints. And so they do this on purpose to show what's and the word is Catholicity. It shows that we're a part of the universal church with you. We're together. Um, <clears throat> so it's not it's not unintentional plagiarism. It's intentional borrowing to show that, hey, we're on the same team. And so the ways that we might contemplate or, or speak of this today uh, is that this would they would have very kingdom mindset. You know, their their doctrine of the church uh, included those who would see things differently on some of these secondary issues. Very important issues, but secondary issues. Like they agreed on the gospel, scriptures, etc. Uh, and so they, they did this on purpose. Um, okay, any questions? That was a little bit of a historical background. Um, and I'll, I'll be quiet. And then a little bit of a, a why. So the goal is that we would become more of a, you know, a Knowledgeable that we would be more better acquainted with the truth of God's word, uh, that our heads would be shaped and our hearts would be ignited so that our hands are obedient and that we would contend for the faith that we've been charged to hand down and that we would get better acquainted with it so that as I study the catechism, I'm able to better entrust it to my children and to the church that God has given to me. So, um, okay, we're a little over 30 minutes in. <clears throat> which I wanted to be quicker than this. Every week we won't do this background. So. It's much more peaceful on this side, much more white space. Um, this is the question. This is our first question. 
And before I get into it, I want to, um, just give you a little picture, and it's not on your paper, but a little picture of the structure of the, of the um, catechism. So that questions one through six are like intro and foundational stuff. I'm in school right now, and I want to say, you know, and, and this isn't in your, your, uh, your study guide, but you want to know this for the test. Just kidding. Maybe. Um, so questions 7 through 43 are, what are we to believe about God? Questions 44, and y'all forgive my handwriting. It's just, it's just been this way since third grade, and I can't make it any better. Um, this is our duty that God requires. So that's just, a, I mean, that's 114 questions. But that's the general gist of it. And this is very similar. Um, say, go read the book of Romans. Or go, it's easier to go read the book of Ephesians, much shorter. But you're, it's going to have a very similar pattern. You're going to have, um, you know, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, to the, to the saints of Ephesus. Um, blessed be our God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, even as he chose us before the foundation of the world. So that he, he has this intro, and then he moves into uh, th theological, this is what we ought to believe, right? Chapter 2, but you were dead in your sins and trespasses, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. Um, verse 4, but God being rich in, rich in mercy because of the great love in which he's loved us, made us alive to, even when we were dead. Anyways, it's awesome. Chapter 2. But anyways, it's the, theology. And then there's this chapter 4, therefore do this. Chapter 5, therefore do this. Uh, same pattern in Romans. In Romans, it's very stark. You have 11 chapters of, he goes, intro, welcome, good to see you, love you guys, let's get into it. And then chapter 12, after all of 11 chapters of theology, he goes, chapter 12, therefore live like this the end of the book. Uh, and so that's a it's kind of a biblical paradigm. The <clears throat> This one, the, an orthodox, which follows the Heidelberg. Um, and this is just, I might should have done this one, but it, anyways, um, it follows a guilt, grace, gratitude pattern. Um, that's how that's how the Heidelberg and the Orthodox are set up. So, okay, that's just helpful to know where you are, where you're going as you study it. Okay, um, I'm not going to be able to get through all of my notes here. Okay, so don't stress because we are we're gonna I'm gonna do my best to to cap it at an hour. So, it, or maybe a little before. I don't know if you were here last week. Saw all my kids run in. All that's on Facebook. Uh, and I was still mic'd up, show my, my lack of parenting skills. Um, so who is the first, and this word's going to throw you off, but it's okay. Who is the first and chiefest being? God. God is the first and chiefest being. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask the question, and you're going to give me the answer, okay? Who is the first and chiefest being? God. God is the first and chiefest being. Okay, and chiefest just simply means... Uh, it's another way of saying first. You could say uh, preeminent. If I can spell that. Um, supreme, supreme or supremacy. Hey, Mary. Oh, sorry. Um, foremost, 
So it's a, it's a way of saying who is both first uh, in sequence, in order, in, uh, in time. That's, I don't really like that. We'll talk about that in a minute. Who's the first to be around? And then who is the biggest deal? You get that? You go with sort of what, what, the, what they're starting out with. And what's great here, this is, this is not a knock on, uh, on our Presbyterian brethren. <laughs> Um, but the, the Westminster begins with what is the chief end of man, which is a fantastic question. Uh, what is the chief end of man to glorify God and enjoy him forever? Totally true. Uh, our, the Baptist catechism starts with God rather than man. So I'm just going to not look at you, Mary Kay. Um, Mary Kay's dad is an is a ordained Presbyterian, right? He's ordained. He's, yeah, yeah. I loved little Gene. I don't know if he loved me anymore, but... Um. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, so first, and who's, who is preeminent or supreme? Uh, and obviously the answer is God. So you don't want to just say, okay, let's go, let's go to question two. I already knew that. Like if somebody were to walk up to you on the street, uh, even though you might be thrown off with, by the word chiefest, you could probably say God, God is. Um, but what is the catechism teaching us? Um, what is it teaching us about God? And so there are three, uh, what are called proof texts that are given. I, I typed them out on that paper. And I just want to reference them real quickly. Um, and these, are, these show up in the, in the document. These aren't from me. Um, the first is Isaiah 44, 6. It says, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first <clears throat> and the last. There is no God besides me. So I am the first and the last. There is no God besides me. That doesn't just mean that God is first in sequence and that somehow he'll, he's here when everything shows up and he's, he's here when he's gone. But that's also when he's saying the first and the last that shows up in the book of Revelation on the Alpha and the Omega uh, that is a statement not just of, hey, I was around first and I'll be around after, but it's a statement of preeminence, that I'm the, I'm the, I'm the chief being, I'm the boss, I'm the, I'm the sovereign, I'm the king of all. Uh, there is no other, there is no God besides me. There's no God. Um, there is, there's no other being on par, on the same scale, level of existence as God. There's, so there's no other, uh, any, anyways, and I've kind of Kind of press into some of that later. Um, Isaiah forty-eight, twelve. Listen to me, O Jacob, even Israel, whom I called. I am He. I am the first. I am also the last. Uh, again, same same principle. It is yes. It is saying God is there in the beginning, um, but He's also saying I am. I have supremacy over all things. I'm foremost over all things, um, over all beings. And as as a short aside. The, and you might be thinking of that revelation, right? I am Alpha and Omega. That should clue you in on how to understand the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is absolutely saturated with Old Testament phrases and imagery of like the prophetic imagery. And so um, just I'm not going to chase that rabbit because it's a mighty big, big rabbit. Um, but that should that should clue us in of because these are, those are two references, random, not random, but two references not referencing Revelation that show us the, the connection with the prophets. And then Psalm 97, 9, For you are the Lord most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. Um, and that's, you see, Lord, all caps, that's Yahweh, uh, El Elyon, most high. Uh, above all gods there is Elohim. Um, and Elohim can be used in different contexts, translated in different ways. Uh, but you are most high. So that's a statement of uh, not of his before time, but of his exaltation. That you are uh, over all the earth, you are most high. There might be other powers and principalities that we talk about um, in the heavenly places. But you are most high. And nothing and no one and nowhere is on par with you, God. So God is... First, he is, and, and I'll just kind of, uh, I'll point you to, I'm not going to read, I'm not going to read everything I've written, um, but that he is the, he's first cause. And 
that's significant in some conversations that we can't have right now. But um, and a good resource if you're looking. Uh, and I am going to order you all. I'm just trying to find a good, cheap, not cheap in quality, but affordable. Um, I want to get you. I want basically want to get you this, which is the the Confession of Faith and the Catechism, just so you have it. And um, there's a paperback edition that I can get for about a little over six dollars a piece. And so I'm looking at about fifteen of those, which is around a hundred bucks. So um, that's my goal. I just got to get it done. Um, but oh, the resource. This is. Um, a scriptural exposition of the Baptist Catechism by Benjamin Bedom. I don't know how to say his last name. B-E-D-D-O-M-E, if you're interested. And, he, I mean, he's taking this catechism and he kind of opens it up with further questions. And so a lot of what you see here on your sheet, I, I pulled from him. Not everything, but much, a, lot of, a lot of that's there. Um, and it's just a good resource. He's a um, 18th century... Baptist preacher. So he's first cause. And so what I mean by that, I, I kind of pulled from first, first Corinthians eight, six there. And really the, uh, from whom are all things from whom are all things. You see another uh, picture of this in John's gospel referencing Jesus. Uh, John chapter one, verse three, I believe. Let me see. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. So, so you have John, the Apostle John, writing that, and then you have the Apostle Paul writing 1 Corinthians 8, 6. Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. This is just a wonderful moment of the divinity of Jesus, but we'll get to that in our, in our catechism. But all things came into being through Christ. So all things came to being through Christ um, from God the Father. So from God the Father through Christ. Uh, it's a, the creation is a Trinitarian work. We'll talk about that later. But God is the first cause. So that, uh, and because he's the first cause, he is the cause of all subsequent cause and effects. So that there are no cause and effects that exist in this world as realities that are distinct or apart from God as the first cause. So what I mean by that, there's no multiverse where God is not God. There's no parallel universe where God is not God. Uh, He remains God and he remains the first cause and where everything comes from him and from from him and through him. Um, He's obviously first in creation. And so when you say he's first in creation, in the beginning, God, that's, a, uh, that's the beginning of the Christian faith. Because it's a statement that God did not come into being. Uh, and when you pair it with what I was just reading about first, from 1 Corinthians and John, then you see that God, God didn't come into being. And the second person of the Trinity didn't come into being. God the Spirit did not come into being. That God has always been. So that there was, uh, if you will, and this is like... It's impossible for us to conceive it, but I'm just going to try to conceive it for you. Uh, say, you know, this is God. That's stupid looking. Um, and this is the beginning. So that this is where time begins. But where time begins is also where space begins. Not like outer space, but like space. God is, a, as we'll see in a little while, uh, God is a spirit. He's without parts or passions. Uh, so that... God existed in the perfection of his triune fellowship before time and space. So there, there, was no, there was no bubble of space. Like there was no this many square inches is God. There's no, there was no containment area. It was just God. Just the triune God. And then he said in his infinite wisdom and perfection said, let there be light. That's, and when you begin to pair that with a heart that is on already glowing with a warmth for Jesus, that that should bring us to the point of awe and worship. That when he says he's the first, he's like, he's pre-first. Okay. That's a terrible drawing, but you get the idea. Maybe you get the idea. 
which it's just important. And that it's, it's another indication that God is of, um, is of a different kind than us. We're made in his image, but he alone is creator and we are creature. Um, and cre- that being, we are, we're both um, relation with God and distinction. We're made in his image for a relationship with him, but we cannot lose the creator-creature distinction. We'll talk about that later. I don't want to muddy the waters. It was just on my brain. So, um, he is first in creation. So there was nothing that predates God. Uh, there's Genesis 1-1 there. There's Genesis 33-9. And then I give a sort of a therefore. That's what these my three dots mean. Therefore, um, God should be first in our lives. Psalm 139 when I awake, I'm still with you, that God is always before us. Psalm 73, 25, whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth that God should be, because he is first, he is the first and chiefest being. He should be first in my life. Um, he should be first uh, in my life. He should be top, top priority. Defining reality ought to be God. Uh, and not only should he be the defining reality, but I should be giving him my first and best. Uh, that's the second page. We should give God the first and best of ourselves and of all we have. Second um, Corinthians 8, 5. But they, gave the, gave, they first gave themselves to the Lord. That we should first give ourselves. We should be our first commitment. And even sort of recommitment each morning is I'm committing myself to the Lord. I'm committing myself to the Lord. Uh, and then Matthew six thirty three: Seek first his kingdom uh, so that I'm... Uh, and there's other scriptures about giving him the first, right? giving him the best of what I have. Do everything in the name of the Lord, whether you eat or drink. Do all for the glory of God. Uh, and so he's, he's the first, but then he's also uh, the chiefest. And so the point two there, I kind of list out. He's the preeminent being who is like you among the gods, O Lord. Uh, he's foremost above all authorities. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. So that all authority... And God's there isn't talking about divine individuals or divine entities, um, but it's talking about mighty authorities. So whether it be angelic or earthly authorities, all of them are uh, accountable to and answer to God, the king above all. Uh, He's chief in heaven. The heavens will praise your wonders and he's the chief on earth. Uh, Who among the sons of the mighty is like the Lord, greatly to be feared. Uh, So he's he's. He is foremost. And all of these are just sort of unpacking uh, these ideas of first and foremost or first and chiefest. And he alone is supreme. There's no, as I've mentioned before, there's no rivals. God has no rivals. Uh, so when, even when you think about uh, God's contention with Satan, it is a, a contention between the greater, much greater, and the much lesser. That the the distinction between God and Satan uh, is is way beyond the distinction between us and an ant. Just the level of being, okay? Uh, and too often when we think about Satan, we, we kind of puff him up because he's much bigger and better than us. Uh, but he is nothing compared to God. Like, not any, not close. Um, so I will, Psalm 57 two, I will cry to God most high. There's that most high, again. He is supreme, chief, preeminent, Above all, um, and then there's some therefores. So, because God is first, He should be first to us, and we should give Him our first and best. Because He is chief, <clears throat> He should be chiefly loved. Um, he should be. We, we should. And this is: we love the Lord God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Uh, that we're called to love God because He is supreme. And if He's supreme and foremost, that means He is supreme in value and treasure. So that the at the parables of the kingdom that Jesus tells in Matthew chapter 13, where you have the parable of the, um, the treasure hidden in the field, right? It's, he goes and he leaves it there and he sells everything he has so that he can go buy the field. Uh, that's not just a, um, a statement of priority. That's, in the, that's a statement of valuation that the, the man buying the field is saying that what's contained in that treasure is more valuable than all that I have. 
And if, and if God is more valuable than all that we have, we should love him above everything that we are and everything that we have and in anything in this world. Um, love him with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Um, God is to be feared above all with a holy reverence. Matthew 10, 28. Do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to, to destroy both soul and body in hell. Um, so we have this... Uh, Love, and then we have fear. And oftentimes, you know, this isn't like, you know, you would fear a, uh, if you're walking in the African savanna and you stumbled on a lion, it, you know, you're not, you, you would not, you're not fearing like that because the lion is reckless and um, uh, not intelligent, um, ruthless, etc. You, you fear God as God, as the one to whom I give account, to whom I am uh, up in his image I am made, um, and that he is the sovereign over all, that ultimately he holds my destiny. Uh, so you fear him, you revere him, and these things, um, these things together become the fuel of worship. Right? These are not rivals, but that, that in, in God, in Christ, these things are paired where we are loving and revering. There is a, um, uh, there are, Isaiah talks about those who tremble at God's word um, so that there is a holy reverence for the magnitude, the worth of God and the sinfulness of, that, that my own sinfulness and the sinfulness of people. Uh, and then we look at what God has done for us in Christ and there's this mixture of, of love and reverence that fuels worship and obedience uh, and then I just finish Psalm 144, 15, uh, that living as though, living in the reality that God is first and foremost, uh, it leads to blessedness. And, and happiness. Because when we live in, in this reality, uh, or let me say it in a negative way first. When we don't live in this reality, we're, we are, um, we're living in a way that the world is not designed. The world is designed and created and we are made and created under this reality. So that when we live by grace and the spirit within us, we live as though God is first and chiefest. He's first and foremost. Then we're actually lining up with way God meant meant for creation to be and he meant for us to be and that means blessedness in God's design and means happiness and joy all those sorts of things so um, any questions that was kind of a blitz I'm learning as we go here um, but I I'm really excited I'm excited about this and um, look forward to the future